Thanks for tuning in to Access Utah. Today, I'm Tom Williams. Anthony Durr's All the Light We Cannot See was one of the most mentioned books in our most recent UPR community book list. You can check that book list out uh, online, upr.org. Uh, All the Light We Cannot See was published in May of 2014, and in September of that year, Anthony Durr visited Utah for several events as a part of the Utah Humanities Book Festival. While he was in Logan, he dropped by the UPR studios for a fascinating conversation about All the Light We Cannot See and related topics. And we're revisiting that conversation today. Here, then, is my conversation with Anthony Durr from September of 2014. Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Anthony Durr is author of the New York Times bestseller, All the Light We Cannot See. It's a novel about a blind French girl and a German boy whose paths collide in occupied France as they both try to survive the devastation of World War II. Durr says the novel is about the magic of radio. It's about propaganda, a cursed diamond, children in Nazi Germany, puzzles, snails, Natural History Museum in Paris, uh, the magical seaside town of Saint-Malo in France, and the ways in which people against all odds try to be kind to one another. He says, referring to the book's title, there are countless invisible stories still buried within World War II. Stories of ordinary children, for example, are the kind of light we do not typically see, and that ultimately the title is intended as a suggestion that we spend too much time focused on only a small slice of the spectrum of possibility. We're going to talk about all the light we cannot see and uh, related topics. Anthony Durr, a pleasure to welcome you in. Thanks, Tom. It's a pleasure to be here. You live in Boise, I understand. Yeah, we live in Boise, and it kind of reminds me a little bit of Logan. It's so pretty this morning, and I'm happy to have that wind coming out of the canyon. It's a lovely place. So I was asking you before we went on the air, I was curious where we, uh, you know, I read your biography. I grew up in Ohio. Yep. And so how'd you end up in Boise? I grew up in Ohio, and then I went to college at a little school in Maine called Bowdoin College. And around sophomore year, I fell in love with an Idaho girl. Okay. And uh, eventually, after graduate school, she got hired back west in Idaho, and we both wanted to get back to the mountains, and we're happy out there. Well, love's the best reason, right? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, It's a great place to have kids. The other day, somebody's like, why do you live in Idaho? And I was like, well, we have four bedrooms in Boise, and if we lived in Brooklyn, I don't know if we (laughs) would have one. Couldn't afford. Couldn't afford more than one. Well, All the Light We Cannot See, it's getting uh, great buzz, great reviews. It's 10 years in the making. Yeah. 10 years ago, I had the idea, uh, 2004. I was was teaching at Princeton for one year, and I'd finished a book, had my notebook open in my lap, searching around for new ideas. Uh, And the train seat in front of me, a man was talking on his cell phone. And as we approached New York City... The train starts to go underground, and, you know, concrete and steel are slipping overhead. And uh, the train starts to go a little bit into this tunnel, and his call dropped. He was talking about something really important, the Matrix, the the movie The Matrix. (laughs) And he got angry. He got a little frighteningly and unreasonably angry. It was bashing his phone and swearing and after I finished worrying about my own safety for a second I started thinking you know what he's forgetting and really maybe what we're all forgetting all the time with with these amazing devices in our pockets is that it's a miracle you know he's sending little packets of light at the speed of light you know ricocheting between radio towers that's what cell cell phone means you know cellular technologies little cells and they're relaying maybe hundreds or even maybe thousands of miles to whoever he's talking to and you know they're communicating instantaneously at the speed of light and for the history of humans that was a strange thing to hear the voice of a stranger you had to be able to see the stranger to hear the stranger and so I started, I started thinking about electromagnetism, and right there on the train I wrote down the title, All the Light We Cannot See. 
trying to think about, you know, all the uh, amazing reach of the electromagnetic spectrum and how we're focused on just this tiny little sliver of it, the light we can see. And of course, that's you know metaphor for awareness as well. There's there many other uh, many other things. So, and then I think you had this 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 image, uh, a boy. I did trapped, and his only connection is the radio. Yeah, that's great, Tom. Yeah, the first year, you know, really had no idea what I was doing. Just trying to usually, you know, projects come to me very shapeless, and this was, you know, just basically like lumps of clay I was playing with. And I just all I could think of was I had a blind girl reading a story to a boy over a radio, and I conceived of the boy as trapped in some way. He needed that story to get him through a difficult time, and um, and I liked the idea of these invisible waves of light passing through walls the way our voices are right now you know that walls don't matter to them so that he could hear this story even though he himself corporally bodily cannot get out it seemed an important thing but it was a full year before i even started to understand that might be in world war ii and who the children might be right and a visit to uh it's now having read uh from your book, I want to go to Saint Malo. We'll talk a little bit about this, uh, but uh, maybe you could uh, flesh out the plot a little bit more so people could, you know, hang their hat on it, so to so to speak. So you've got uh, this boy he's growing up in Germany. Yeah, his name is Werner. Yeah, so tell us about him and, and tell us about uh, the girl as well. Sure, and I think I'll just go right to Saint Malo because that's really the, the about a year later when I was on book tour in France. That's when I started to realize maybe this is where I should set my book. I was walking around this beautiful walled city. Uh, it's in Brittany, um, and it's uh, you know right on the English Channel. These emerald in turquoise waters are hitting this old walled city, and I'm walking through with my French editor. And I say rather foolishly, uh, you know, look how old all this stuff is. And he said, well, actually, this city was, I think it was 89% destroyed, significantly destroyed by American bombs at the end of World War II. This was about two months after D-Day in August. The Germans had holed up in this old citadel, even as they were pushing through a lot of the Normandy towns and getting towards Paris, this one little stronghold still held out. And then they painstakingly rebuilt the whole city in the 50s, you know, to the point where now a foolish tourist like me has to look really closely to notice that the lichen is a lot older on some buildings and some of the stone is newer. Uh, so that's when I thought, okay, that's where I'll have the boy trapped. You know, here's a story I didn't know anything about, and I wanted to try to research and understand more about it. Mm. So I conceive of the boy as a German boy. His name is Werner, and he's an orphan and grows up in a coal town and is very gifted with electronics and radio. I tried to invest some of my own passions about radio and this magic that I feel about it in, into him. And then the girl is named Marie, and she grows up in the Natural History Museum of Paris, which is a place I love, and I just thought it would be so fun to try to imagine growing up there. And she's sightless, but she's um, in many ways a lot braver and more capable person than Werner is. And uh, her father takes good care of her, at least until the war begins and they have to leave Paris. And uh, he is the master of the locks at the museum, so his job is to keep everything under lock and key. And, of course, the Nazis invading Paris in June of 1940, uh, all kinds of valuables had to be shipped out of town, including many things from the Natural History Museum. Mm. And and the father is tasked with, uh, I guess, taking this this diamond. Yes, which, which may or may not be the real diamond. They make right. three decoys, and, uh, yeah, they send them in all different directions. And uh, this was w- just one of the many very valuable things that were in the museum. The diamond is, of course, invented, but a lot of this stuff is actually very true. And so, yeah, I imagine that he doesn't know, he can't quite tell if this is a uh, 
fake or a real diamond, and he carries it out of the city with his daughter, and they go to the town of Saint-Malo, where he has an uncle. Hmm. Uh, so the, the diamond is invented, but this is based on real history. The, the French, as you say, uh, they, uh, they didn't think that they would be overrun by the Germans, right? They were, <laughs> I guess, foolishly confident, and so they didn't have much time to uh, get the Mona Lisa, get, you know, get everything out. Yeah, well said, Tom. Yeah, I mean, of course, it, it sounds foolish in one degree, but for almost everybody who was over the age of 30, they remembered the horrors of World War One and thought nobody is going to ever want to repeat that kind of level of destruction. So it really wasn't until maybe four, three or four weeks before the invasion of Paris that French citizens started to realize, whoa, this might actually happen. The Nazis are coming in, and they're coming very, very quickly. So, you know, imagine, look around you right now in your home, and imagine if you only have two or three weeks. And uh, in some cases, people really didn't even want to believe until the day before. And you've got to get everything out of there, including your children, and where will you go, and you know, what would you do? So you've, uh, you've had this idea on the, on the subway. You've gone to Saint-Malo. You, you know you're going to set this in World War II. Uh, so that brings up a whole host of issues, um, including the Holocaust. You've got to deal with that. We'll get into that later. Um, but you say that, uh, by the way, this is on your website. Uh, you have a Q&A there. Um, so referring to the book's title, they're, they're sort of the obvious metaphors, and then you talk about one that's uh, maybe not as uh, obvious. That there are countless invisible stories still buried within World War II, stories of ordinary children, for example. That's, that's one thing. Is this something that... I guess you knew beforehand or while you're doing research, all these stories that, uh, and some of them need to be told. I guess all of them, ideally, but at least to chip away at it. Yeah, um, certainly not something I knew beforehand. I knew very little. In fact, I thought Brittany was in Britain until I got going on, you know, reading about the war. Uh, I think, you know, World War II is at this really interesting time where um, the f- people for whom it is memory are reducing in number every day. Um, you know, we are losing not only American veterans, but in Europe, you know, people who remember the war are all, you know often in their 90s, and we're losing them very quickly. And we're in danger. I don't know if danger is the right word, but we have to be careful in how we remember all these stories. Um, I think about how my sons, who are 10, have started to learn about the war, and it's often in kind of frightening to me ways, like through video games or through the History Channel, which can be very responsible, but will also occasionally do these um, really black and white, almost animated narratives of the war where, you know, German soldiers are dying on all sides and, you know, triumphant American tanks are rolling into Berlin. And, uh, you know, I think the truth is always a little bit more complicated than that. So my goal here was to try to say, you know, can you empathize with this French girl, somebody we're pretty used to empathizing with, as deeply as maybe a a German boy, a German citizen who um, makes some poor decisions, but also is really, by socioeconomic reasons, um, by lack of education, really compromised in a lot of ways in terms of how he's able to think about what's right and what's wrong. Mm. So I guess it is good versus evil. That's kind of how we think of it. It's the stereotype. And in some ways, that's true, right? You know, the Nazis perpetrated the Holocaust. There's no way you can defend any of that. But there are some, some, when you get down, I guess, past the Nazis, for the German citizens like Werner, there are some gradations there. Of course. Yeah, of course it's good versus evil in many of the narratives. And um and yeah, there's no no denying that. I just think as you get towards the lives of children, uh, you know, it's important to try to think, 
you know, what was it like to be uh, 10 years old or 12 years old when this government's coming to power? And, you know, I just kept asking myself, would I have had the strength to say, you know, at age 16, say no? Um, and I don't, I think, unfortunately, the, you know, I look in my dark, tortured soul, I don't know if the answer is yes. You know, I don't know if I would have risked my life or risked my family's well-being to say what we're doing is wrong. And, you know, that's terrible. That's a shameful thing. But I think uh, self-preservation is uh, part of a lot of our lives. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think uh, probably most of us, were, if we're honest, we have to admit that there's a possibility we might have just gone along with it and would have been scared. And, you know, what would we have done? Sure. To a much lesser degree, I wonder what, you know, what kind of things am I, or am I complicitly agreeing with right now? You know, we started airstrikes in Syria yesterday, and, uh, you know, here I am driving on a beautiful sunny day to Utah to talk about my novel. And really, maybe what matters more is I should be in Washington or I should be trying somehow to say, you know, is this the right thing? You know, if you're really concerned about making more members of ISIS uh, is, are dropping bombs on people, is that the best way to, you know, I feel like every, every person we kill will make three or four more terrorists. And I don't know if violence is necessarily the best remedy for violence. Um, so... I, I don't know. I'm complicit in a lot of things right now. I think maybe many of us are. Yeah. So I'd, do you think we compartmentalize that to protect ourselves? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think we can say, hey, I'm still a good person. I love my children, and I'm here. I'm trying to make money to feed my family. And, uh, you know, morally, things are really complicated. But I also am burning a lot of petroleum in my life, and I flew on an airplane on Sunday. And, you know, you know I contributed in global warming in ways that will endanger my children's future and uh, so I think it's hard sometimes to ask yourself these questions. You know, what what about my behaviors? Could I change to make the world a better place? Um, I, there's always ways we can do better. Yeah. How do you how do you relate that or score that or or you know juxtapose that with? I think something that's important to you. I, I see this strain through through interviews and through your writing. That is this sense of wonder that we uh, we ought to open our eyes more than we do. You know, and and get back to the way we were as children. And you, you know you you see the world as many of us do through your children. And I think you, maybe more than a lot of us, try to get back to that and try to try to be aware, aware of that. So that sense that you're suggesting that we all have, maybe juxtaposed with what we were just talking about, which some of that is not a sense of wonder. We, we need to be aware of the bad in the world, too, and what we can do to solve that. And it seems like there's maybe a, a little bit of a, a clash there. Um, yeah, I'm just very interested in what I read and, and anything that will f- make me feel more alive and more awake. I just don't want to sleepwalk through my life. And um, I'm, I just feel so blessed that my job allows me to try to pay attention attention to the things I'm most curious about. So in the case of this book, not just radio, um, you know, I'm trying to help the reader see what a miracle radio is and how powerful it was in the 30s and 40s. But also uh, snails or uh, light itself. Um, you know, I think about, uh, you know, the miracle of air travel, you know, these things that become kind of mundane and habitual and almost kind of um, foul to us. You know, you're crammed into a coach and you're, you know, a salesman on your left eating a barbecue sandwich and the person on your right's watching some awful video and you're like, you forget that you're streaming through the air at 38,000 feet above right. the earth. And, you know, I think that Louis C.K., the comedian, said, you know, you're you're like a Greek god right now. You're in a <laughs> chariot in the sky. 
And so I think sometimes, yeah, I think of my job as a writer is to try to uh, alert us all, you know, my readers to this, to the beauties, the, um, the miracles that are around us, you know, ants, seashells, uh, the formation of streams and rivers, all these things are so interesting the more you look at them. And uh, I think it's important, you know, I don't believe in reincarnation necessarily. I think we have one trip on earth. If you're lucky, you get 80 years here. And why not see as much as you can and be as awake as you can while you're here? Mm. We're going to take a break when we come back more with Anthony Durr on his beautiful new novel, All the Light We Cannot See. Um, when we come back, I'll, I'll continue this theme. We'll, we'll ask uh, about something that uh, Anthony Durr quoted in, a, uh, in an essay, a, a story he wrote. Um, I think it's for Condé Nast. This is your trip to the Big Island of Hawaii with your brother. And you quote Louis Gluck. We look at the world once in childhood. The rest is memory. It's fascinating. Talk about that and much more. We'll get into uh, some of the uh, more of the plots of the novel and uh, have Anthony Durr read from it. More following the break. I'm Jeremy Hobson. President Trump notches up the rhetoric on the Russia investigation, saying the ongoing probe will benefit Democrats in the midterms. And outrage over parents being separated from their children when they cross the border illegally. The president blames Democrats, but it's his administration's policy. We'll discuss next time on Here and Now. Join us this morning at 11 on Utah Public Radio. Hey, I'm Tom Power. You might have heard the news that Roseanne, the TV show, was canceled by ABC after a racist tweet from its creator, Roseanne Barr. Our screen panel will be here to talk about the cancellation and what it tells us about the responsibility of a TV network in 2018. It's coming up on Q from PRI Public Radio International. Join us this afternoon at 1 on Utah Public Radio. President Trump meets with Japan's prime minister next week ahead of a possible summit with North Korea. For Abe, the big risk is that these talks will be inconclusive, they'll be dragging on, and in a way they'll normalize North Korea's having nuclear capability. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. What's at stake for Japan as the U.S. prepares for talks? This afternoon on All Things Considered from NPR News. Join us today from 3 to 6.30 with Shalane Smith-Needham on Utah Public Radio. The following is an encore presentation of Access Utah, which first broadcast in September 2014. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We're talking with Anthony Durr. He's author of the New York Times bestseller, All the Light We Cannot See. It's about a blind French girl and a German boy whose paths collide in occupied France as they both try to survive the devastation of World War II. Anthony Durr says that, among many other things, uh, this is uh, a story about the ways in which people, against all odds, try to be kind to one another. Uh, He set the uh, story in World War II after a visit to the walled city in the Breton of Saint-Malo. And if you read the book, you'll probably want to go. Um, I I guess it's accessible, Anthony Durr. You can... You oh, go sure. and visit. Yeah, it's a gorgeous yeah. city and the great food and walking the ramparts is my favorite thing. The walls are about three stories high, a circle of the entire city, and there's a promenade along the top so you can walk, you know, 360 degrees around the whole city. And, you know, the the little promontory that it's on is barely attached to the mainland of France just by a little spit of sand. So it's really almost an island. And it's so pretty to look down on the beaches and, you know, nice weather. There's tons of people down there. The tides are enormous. So sometimes when the tide goes way out, you know, you have 
acres of beach below and other times the waves are crushing the walls right below you it's an amazing place so on the ramparts you can look over and see into the upper stories of some buildings yeah it's yeah. kind of interesting peer into the lives of people <laughs> yes my first yeah. night there i saw two uh two women uh it was night and you know they're i think on the third floor of this tall apartment house and they're sitting there and they're clinking their wine glasses together and i'm like i don't do they even know i'm here <laughs> you know you're quite close to them does something like that go into your notebook you always, always. have a notebook with you yeah yeah but, Little little things like that, like the incident on the subway, was the genesis for, for this novel. Yeah, you got it. That's one of the yeah. nice things about being a writer is everything can eventually become material. And you, if you're especially if you're rested and well fed, you're often paying attention. And for me, that always ties in with travel. You know, when I leave home, leave the familiar, I start paying more attention to things. And uh, especially if maybe if people around you aren't speaking English, you're a little more heightened too. So I love being able to carry a notebook in foreign cities and pay attention and look at people. And, and that's true in the mountains, too. You know, I feel like anytime I'm away from home and, you know, in surrounded by nature, I'm seeing things a little more clearly if I have a notebook. I'm trying to translate experience into language in some way. It helps you pay attention. I want to get into uh, childhood. You, you uh, decided to, I don't know, you had this image of a boy trapped somewhere listening to a radio and, and hearing a, a young girl. Um, so I don't know if it was conscious decision, I'm going to write about children, but you ended up writing about children. And so that's presents some difficulties, some advantages. Yeah. Um, you know, a lot of the book is about innocence lost. I think what's different about this book is that, you know, I'm pairing these two narratives very closely. There's a, there are 187 chapters in the book. Many are quite short and I just move back and forth almost, Every time, although this, occasionally this pattern breaks, but almost every time I say um, one's, one's Marie, one's Werner, one's Marie, one's Werner, kind of in an A-B alternating structure. So I felt like I was often just spinning two plates, and then I'd go back and forth and try to keep both plates spinning in the reader's mind so that you see these two trajectories move toward each other. But the book is 500 pages long, and they don't intersect until well into the 400s. Right. By the way, it, it looks daunting. You, you know, you, it's, it has some half 500 pages. But the chapters are short, a lot of white space, and you've said that that's purposeful. Yeah. Um, you know, I love reading uh, readers like uh, writers like, say, David Foster Wallace or William Gass, who will write really long, chunky paragraphs. Often, sometimes David Foster Wallace's stories are one paragraph all the way through. But when you're tired at night, occasionally you you hit, you know, you turn the page and you see another block of uninterrupted text, and you're like, okay, here I go. I got to get my energy up. And I feel like, you know, white space, even just hitting return, those are marks of gestures of friendliness to the reader. And I'm asking the reader to do a lot here. My prose tends to be pretty lyrical, so it takes a little energy to get through it. And then I'm asking you to keep these, you know, alternating this ping-ponging effect between the two writer, two characters in your mind. So I felt like one way I can relieve the effort that I'm asking the reader to put in is by having a lot of white space. So sure, chapters end, and then there's a long break and then you turn the page and you get to try in a little short chapter once again uh, and i think it does does work you know when i, I saw the novel I, I thought wow it's that's long <laughs> open it up and i was relieved as a reader that there's short chapters you go back and forth a lot of movement good i want to talk a little bit about um this idea of going back and forth so so you have one chapter you're you're learning about Werner, then you go back to marie you go back and forth but when you go to the other chapter the other character is sort of suspended in your mind it's an interesting thing your mind does it keeps that character going in your mind. And, and as you say, the reader is doing that work to, to sort of, uh, you know, keep the other character going while you're reading about the, the second one. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's kind of a 
common technique of writers using suspense. You know, the the middle of the or the root of the word suspense is pendere, pendere to hang. You know, it's like the word pending, um, pendant that hangs around your neck. So yeah, I like to think of that as you you know you launch your character into a certain place and then you leave her hanging there. And as long as you don't leave her for too long your reader will keep that kind of pendulum swinging in her mind until you go touch the other swinging pendant and then you go back and forth. And there's something nice about that. I think I like reading narratives in which you anticipate how will they intersect and when will they intersect and that kind of keeps you reading. Mm. There's something similar with radio. Um, it's, how's that for a segue? Because oh, I want to talk about, uh, about radio. Um, you, you know, un- unlike television, the, the listeners supplies their own visual imagery right there's uh, there's there's i think more going on it's less passive uh so i wonder if you talk about that in the context of the 1930s Werner is uh, growing up he's discovered a talent for well for for a lot of physical things but especially for for radio he constructs his own shortwave radio right right and what's important about that in terms of the novels uh, in 1937 it became illegal to listen to foreign broadcasts in germany so um, the fact that he's able to repair and manipulate radios enables him to receive broadcasts that maybe the government doesn't necessarily want him to be hearing. And it's not necessarily a political thing for Werner. He's just a boy, but he and his sister start tuning into broadcasts by a Frenchman because they can speak French, and uh, they hear broadcasts about science. And it really is the first time somebody's spoken to the things Werner's most deeply interested in, you know. Um, so... Meanwhile, his sister might, um, you learn later, she might be listening to news broadcasts from the BBC and from mm. France. But Werner's mostly interested because he's learning, you know, um, boys in that town where he grew up had to go work in the mines at age 15. So he's learning maybe there's another path in my life than the one that claimed his father's life, which is the coal mine. Yeah. The, it's interesting what, what they're listening to in, in, in French. And there's, there's some interesting revelations about who this gentleman is who's talking but he's talking about this theory that your brain can create light, right? Which is very interesting to your theme. Yeah, yeah, of but course. And a very interesting idea. Yeah, our brains are trapped in total darkness, right? There's no windows into your yeah. skull. And yet they create for us, you know, of a world full of brimming with color and light. It's just a little paradox, but it's fun to think about. You yeah. know, how does the brain do that? So radio, of course, is very important, and as you say, we've we've a lot of us have lost that sense of magic that, that this disembodied voice from wherever uh, it could be around the world. And in, in the case of ham radio, um, is 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 you know talking to you from from a distant point. It must have been when it first came out. Everybody must have had that sense of magic. Yeah, I mean, 30s and 40s are really even late for that kind of magic. But I think the power it would have over a child especially Werner, who's so isolated in this coal mining town and really just getting one version of the truth pumped into him, this megalomaniacal nationalism pumped into his head from, you know, uh, state broadcasting, the idea that he might be able to hear other voices murmuring underneath that and that voices are invisibly streaking over his town just like they are here, um, is an amazing thing. It's hard for us to put ourselves back in that place because the internet has become all powerful, and and rightly so. It's an amazing technology, but you know, if you try to remember how many generations of humans lived 
with really almost no long-distance communication. There's interesting studies about Nigerian drums and how they were used to transmit news uh, over long um, distances, or even, you know, the Greek centuries lighting one torch on a mountaintop and then another torch. But in terms of the sophistication of the messages that were sent, it wasn't until the 20th century that we could send complicated messages a long way. Now I'm thinking about semaphores. And, and and I've gone to Monty Python there, you know, to Jane Eyre in, in Semaphore. But, uh, yeah, the, these so so when it came to electronic means, uh, this must have been just a, just a, seemed like a huge leap, leap sure, forward. Sure, of course. So at some point, uh, I like this detail, um, Werner encounters a man. Man comes to see him. I guess his, his fame has grown. He has this, this ability. Man smelling of cake, <laughs> which is important because, you know, Werner's a poor boy. Cake's and a, it's a great luxury. Is forbidden at that point, yep. And uh, they, they want him to go and, and fix the radio for, a, I guess, a rich person. That, that's yeah. how he gets involved. A mining official, somebody with ties to the Nazi party. Yeah, and he faces this gorgeous radio, something he's never seen before, and he gets to crawl into the back of it. And he realizes that really it wasn't a very complicated fix at all, and that a couple adults who are trying to fix the radio have missed it. And so, yeah, he fixes the radio, and that... Um, brings him to the attention of this man because he's just a boy. He's 14 at that point. And he says, well, I can help you find a way out of the mines. I know these schools, these elite schools for the quote-unquote racially elite uh, where you can go and learn, you know, rocket propulsion and all the latest technologies. And Werner says, yes, even though he'll leave his sister behind. And she can already intuit that maybe this isn't going to be everything that Werner thinks it will Mm -hmm. be. Yeah, which is the case, I guess, for just about anybody in the war. Yes, and especially in Germany. uh, Especially in Germany, yeah. Yeah. Uh, So he goes to the school, and there's, you know, some, there's an interesting, I guess, struggle for his soul. You know, he's he's being used, essentially. (laughs) Yes, all these boys were really in uh, heinous ways. I mean, teaching them horrific levels of racism and also conditioning them to become brutal machines, really ruthless uh, so yeah, some of the research about these schools was really harrowing for me. The part of the reason the book took me so long is that a lot of the research, really the whole Eastern front and the, le- the scale of human destruction along the Eastern front, so harrowing that, um, and then of course the Holocaust, you know, that sometimes I would have to take month long breaks and try to write other things. Mm-hmm. So, uh, let's talk about the Holocaust. You, uh, you, uh, I've read you in other interviews, um, I guess you have to decide if you're going to write about World War II, you got to deal with the Holocaust somehow. So either you, I guess, you know, do a Holocaust story, or but it has to appear somewhere, right? Of course, yeah. I mean, you well, you hope our at least for American readers, you hope our public schools have done a good enough job that your reader will have it in her mind at the bottom of her understanding as she reads. But, uh, of course, you can't ignore it. Um, And I worried so much about cliché. You know, there's no way I can tell a Holocaust story as well as a survivor has. You know, Primo Levi or Anne Frank. You know, you can't touch. These are classics of literature. So my solution was to uh, haunt the book with the Holocaust and have it kind of run underneath, mostly unspoken, uh, run it underneath the narrative. Um, So, But there are times when it surfaces. There's a... The diamond we mentioned early in the interview that um, Marie's father may or may not be carrying out of the city. There's a much more stereotypical German hunting that. He's a sergeant major named von Rumpel, and he's searching for this diamond. 
And it, uh, one little chapter, it's less than a page in the book. I have him in Poland, and he's th- this. these things really existed, where he goes into this safe house, and he starts sorting through gemstones and ranking them, you know, by their quality, just the way any, you know, gem gemologist would be sorting stones now. And, you know, he wonders, where did all these things come from? And, you know, I'm hoping, crossing my fingers, that a reader understands exactly where they have come mm. from. Right. Uh, um, so I wonder if we talk a little bit more about about Werner and this. this uh, it begins to dawn on him. At a certain level, he I think he, re- he realizes that, you know, I'm being used in a bad way. And, and, and of course, we're, as the reader, we're pulling for him to... You know, to to save some of his soul, at least to you know to come out of this. He's he's a boy. We care about him. He has a friend, Frederick, I think, who I think you've said represents or you know what war can do to the gentle. The uh, I guess that's the word for him. Yeah, a dreamer. The, 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 the dreamers. The dreamers. The dreamers. Um, and and that's just the wrong time and place for a dreamer, right? Middle of war. Yeah, Frederick's really. And in many ways, I drew inspiration for him from one of my sons. He's in, um, Frederick is in love with birds, and uh, it's really important to his parents for their social standing that he goes to the same school that we've been talking about, these Napoli schools that uh, Werner goes to. And, um, you know, he'll, they assume, be in training to become an elite member of their party. But uh, Frederick is not the right kind of boy. So I just tried to wonder... Um, you know, I think about bullying. I think about uh, the way my son is sometimes different than some of his classmates. And, you know, they're not rude to him in the way Frederick's classmates are by any means. But he is just kind of a different kind of kid. And, um, you know, there just wasn't room for that. This is just a brutal time and a place for a kid like that. Yeah. The whole point of these exercises is to ferret out the weakest in these mm-hmm. schools. And, uh, you know, they're trying to tighten the core and make them all moving in the same direction. They said, you know, you're the blade at the tip of the spear of the Reich. Um, you know, all these really creepy things. And, you know, of course, that meant boys were getting pushed out all the time. Mm. And Werner, interestingly, Werner, I guess when he goes to the school, they measure the blondness of his hair, right? Sure, they measured everything. This, that, None of that's made up. Yeah, they quantify how blue your eyes are, um, you know, even the shape of your head, this creepy phrenology stuff where they're trying to find the perfect race, you know. Stuff is very awful. Yeah, yeah, that, it's, it's just horrible to contemplate this, this uh, you know, trying to shape humanity. Yeah. You're playing God in essence. You're, you're wiping out one race and you're trying to, you know, Exalt the Aryan race, and it, it just doesn't work, and, it, and it's horrible. And it was only 70 years ago, 75 yeah. years yeah. ago. Yeah, and and continues in, in some, some cases. You know, you think about Bosnia and, and other places. We have, uh, we have an email. This is from Steve in Arizona. Steve says, By coincidence, I happen to be reading When Paris Went Dark, a historical account of the German occupation of Paris that I imagine your guest may also have read. Your guest this morning uses the phrase, The Invasion of Paris, which Ronald Rossbottom, author of When Paris Went Dark, never uses because Paris was undefended. Effectively, the French invited the Germans into the city and never fired a single shot in its defense to the considerable chagrin of many. So from uh, Ross Bottom's perspective, there never actually was an invasion. It was more of an invitation. Many thoughts. Huh. That's lovely. That's interesting. Yeah, I know I haven't read that book. I think it's a newer book, but I'm not sure. Um, but yeah, I've read a lot of books about the occupation of France. Uh, one of, in particular, I remember Marianne and Chain's um, wonderful book. 
but yes, that's true. Um, they did bomb Paris a couple of times in the run-up, but yeah, at that point, they had already broken the back of the French military, and the Germans walked right in. Yeah, mm. and and you know, I love some of the descriptions you see. Like their uniforms aren't even dirty, and they have carnations pinned to their uh, lapels. I remember reading about one German soldier who was just walking a beagle on a leash, you know, as they arrive in Paris. It's uh, yeah, those are really sad and very powerful images. And then it puts me in mind of the resistance. And uh, you did some, I think, some some research. And in fact, for the resistance in Saint Malo. Um, and there again, we get into human nature, because in the years after the war, everybody was in the resistance, right? Right. When the reality was right. much, and, and, you know, you and I may not have joined the resistance, you know, there's a lot of fear. Right. And, yeah. And something I address, or I try to address in the novel is, is collaboration. Um, you know, if just by doing nothing, are you a collaborator is, um, you know, it's a tacit complicity just by sitting still somehow, are you saying I'm complicit in this? Do you have to risk your life to say I'm part of the resistance? Mm. And also, you know, I was trying to give Marie, you know, she gets involved in the resistance in an interesting way. And trying to say, like, you know, our image of a resistance hero is this, you know, mustached guy in a leather jacket who can make a machine gun out of a paper clip and, you know, ultra resourceful. And yet I tried to say, you know, here's a housekeeper, here's a blind girl who are saying no to this regime in very interesting and kind of subtle and subversive ways. Mm. Let's take another break. When we come back, I'll have you uh, read uh, chapter five, I think it is, get into talking about Marie. She's very interesting, and uh, she has an inner strength I think we wish we all had. She's blind, and uh, at the beginning of the of the book, she's she's essentially alone, right, in this in this house, and the, the bombs are coming. Um, and, you know, full-grown man sighted, you know, who knows whether we would have handled things as well as Marie did or does. Uh, more with Anthony Durer following the break. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Apogee Instruments, a Cache Valley company building precision sensors that support global research and sustainable food production, renewable energy, and climate change. Say your family's been running a manufacturing company since 1890. You thought you'd seen everything, and then it got to be a global economy. When you ask me today to compete against China on a piece-price basis, it's just, it's not a fair comparison at all. I'm Kai Rizdal, American Manufacturing, Part 2, next time on Marketplace. Join us tonight at 6.30 on Utah Public Radio. On the next Putumayo World Music Hour, we'll spotlight some international hits that brought world music to mainstream audiences, including Santana and Jimmy Cliff. I'm Dan Storper. And I'm Rosalie Howarth. Join us for World Hits, the next Putumayo World Music Hour. Join us Friday night at 10 on Utah Public Radio. The following is an encore presentation of Access Utah, which first broadcast in September 2014. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. About 10 minutes left. If you would like to join the conversation with Anthony Durr, author of the New York Times bestseller, All the Light We Cannot See. He's in studio with us. You can reach us at upraxis at gmail.com. 
And all the light we cannot see is about a blind French girl and a German boy whose paths collide in occupied France. They both try to survive the devastation of World War II. Drew says, among many other things, this book is about the ways in which people, against all odds, try to be kind to one another. Of course, in this horrible setting. Uh, so I want to get into uh, Marie Laure, is her, is her name. And, and to, to reset the scene, she has uh, grown up in, uh, in Paris. She's gone blind fairly early on. Mm-hmm. And uh, her father is in charge of uh, the, uh, the locks at the Museum of Natural History. Yep. And so at this point, early in the, in the book, they've uh, fled to Saint-Malo. So I'll have you read uh, chapter five. It's a brief, brief chapter. Sure. Yeah. So this is the 7th of August, 1944, and this is the beginning of the Allied siege on the city. And in a chapter just before the one I'll read, um, airplanes have dropped leaflets over the town. And the leaflets say, urgent message to the inhabitants of this town, depart immediately to open country. And so, uh, yeah, this is page five, the girl. In a corner of the city, inside a tall, narrow house at number four, Rue Valberel, on the sixth and highest floor, a sightless 16-year-old named Marie-Laure Leblanc kneels over a low table covered entirely with a model. The model is a miniature of the city she kneels within and contains scale replicas of the hundreds of houses and shops and hotels within its walls. There's the cathedral with its perforated spire and the bulky old Chateau de Saint-Malo and row after row of seaside mansions studded with chimneys. A slender wooden jetty arcs out from a beach. A delicate reticulated atrium vaults over the seafood market. Minute benches, the smallest no larger than apple seeds, dot the tiny public squares. Marie runs her fingertips along the centimeter-wide parapet crowning the ramparts, drawing an uneven star shape around the entire model. She finds the opening atop the walls where four ceremonial cannons point to see Bastien de la Hollande, she whispers, and her fingers walk down a little staircase, Rue de Cordier, Rue Jacques Cartier. In a corner of the room stand two galvanized buckets filled to the rim with water. Fill them up, her great-uncle has taught her, whenever you can. The bathtub on the third floor, too. Who knows when the water will go out again? Her fingers travel back to the cathedral spire, south to the gate of Dinan. All evening she has been marching her fingers around the model, waiting for her great-uncle, who owns this house, who went out the previous night while she slept, and who has not returned. And now it is night again, another revolution of the clock, and the whole block is quiet, and she cannot sleep. She can hear the bombers when they are three miles away, a mounting static, the hum inside a seashell. When she opens the bedroom window, the noise of the airplanes becomes louder. Otherwise, the night is dreadfully silent, no engines, no voices, no clatter, no sirens, no footfalls on the cobbles, not even gulls, just a high tide, one block away, and six stories below, lapping at the base of the city walls. And something else, something rattling softly, very close. She eases open the left-hand shutter and runs her fingers up the slats of the right. A sheet of paper has lodged there. She holds it to her nose. It smells of fresh ink, gasoline maybe. The paper is crisp. It has not been outside long. Marie hesitates at the window in her stocking feet, her bedroom behind her, seashells arranged along the top of the armoire, pebbles along the baseboards. Her cane stands in the corner. Her big braille novel waits face down on the bed. The drone of the airplanes grows. 
That's Anthony Durr reading from his novel, All the Light We Cannot See, talking about his, uh, his character, Marie, who's a blind girl. At this point, she's in her teens, yep. I think. She's 16. Uh, I, I love that, that, that image, kind of a sensory image. She smells the ink, so she knows what it is. She can't read it, of course. Yeah, but she doesn't know what it's telling her to yeah. do. And they were in such a terrible bind because the Germans had closed all the gates to the city and said, stay in your homes if you're still here. And then the allies dropped leaflets saying, get out of your homes as quickly yeah. as possible. And then here come, here, come the, here come the bombers. And this is the allies, right? They're, you know, they're trying to get the move on with the war, but there's a lot of civilians who are going to be affected. Yes, of course. And we had, uh, we being allies, we had very little uh, concrete intelligence about how many Germans were there. They had re-excavated and um, really fortified tunnels under the city. And, uh, you know, some some intelligence reports said there were only 500, and some said there could be as many as 10,000 Germans holed up there. And they had incredible resources. They had a radio line directly, or a telephone line directly to Berlin. They had uh, water, supposedly enough water that they could last a year. They had all kinds of ammunition. They even had an underground hospital. So, um, you know, some would say the force was not necessarily, and others would say it was. Mm. Uh, so tell me a little, I have an, an, another email question, but I want to, before we go to that, uh, more on Marie. Uh, this character Marie, it's, she's a very admirable character. She's, she's very strong. And and you're setting this up. She's she's when the bombs come, she's alone there. Yeah, she's in an incredibly vulnerable position for much of the novel. Um, but yeah, she um, she was fun for me to write. I think she has just a very curious soul, and um, she is lucky to end up with her great uncle Etienne, who's also even though he's a veteran of the first war and suffers from PTSD and is really afraid of many things, he's also uh, very curious about the natural world. He teaches her a lot about insects and particularly seashells. Seashells become kind of an outlet for her in a way to uh, escape. And then the other thing is she loves to read. And um, I loved imagining uh, a time when books were so rare. You know, on my phone, I have probably 20 books on my phone. (laughs) You know, you can carry the complete works of Shakespeare on an iPad. And this idea that for her, she would just be able to, you know, her family, her father would be able to afford one book a year in Braille and that these would be her vehicles out of, you know, into imagination and out of difficult circumstances mm-hmm. uh, was really powerful for me. So writing a, a blind character, is, is this a way, it, it occurs to me this, this maybe is a way for the reader to try to imagine the world in a different way because you're, you know, you're putting your place in the, in the place of a, a blind girl, getting back to that sense of wonder, which you feel many of us have lost. Yeah, I think so. I mean, you know, a lot of my work has to do with trying to break habitualization, the way we become, um, you know, even if you're eating something delicious like ice cream, by the 20th spoonful, you're not tasting it as keenly as you were on the first one. You know, I, some of the best candy bars I've ever had or after a two-week backpacking trip and you come back and you're like, oh my gosh, a Kit Kat is a majestic thing, you know? And I think that's what literature can do for people is occasionally take you outside of yourself and remind you of all the gifts and pleasures that you have in your life. Here's the email from Amy, Amy in Cache Valley. She says, I was moved by the scene between Frederick and Werner when he says, your problem is that you still believe you own your life. Do you believe we ever own our lives? That's a nice question. Thanks for reading the book. Um, 
you know, it's we're in different circumstances. We have just so many more freedoms than those boys did at that time. And I think what Frederick had resigned himself to was saying, I don't have control over what's happening. And what's ironic and special there is eventually they're in this position at the school where they're forced uh, to torture somebody. I won't give too much away, but they're forced to throw water on a prisoner. And Frederick decides he is going to try to own this one part of his life and make a choice and say, this is wrong and I'm not going to do it. And it takes Werner a long time to be able to make that same decision, really almost the entire novel. Mm. So, yes, I do believe that we own our lives, despite all these different controls that are put on us. But I think there are these moments sometimes when you can say, you know what, I don't like this job and I'm not going to go today. Or, um, you know what, today I've saved $500. I'm going to walk into the airport. I'm going to pick a city off a monitor. I'm going to go there. I mean, you know, there are possibilities that we have and you just have to say, you know what, I'm going to own that today and make a choice. Just a couple of minutes left. Um, I want to loop back to propaganda. You know, you, you've thought a lot about propaganda. Nazis were masters and uh, they had a great medium in radio, for example, and you talk about a lot of this with Werner. And I wonder, bringing this forward to today, uh, it's the Internet, and, and, and one facet of the Internet that we, I think we think uh, common wisdom is, you know, it, governments have a lot more trouble getting one message out. Um, on the other hand, we're all fragmented in our own, you know, media silos. What about, you know, the idea of propaganda and control today? Yeah, I love your phrase, you know, we're fragmented to our media silos. I agree, you know, I, I worry sometimes that I'm not opening myself up to enough different viewpoints because you can quickly go through your day and I'll just listen to NPR News and then maybe I'll watch Jon Stewart or something before bed and that's all I've got for that day. And so I think it's really important sometimes to challenge yourself and listen to alternative viewpoints. Yeah, the the epigraph in the book, um, there are two epigraphs, but the second one is from Goebbels, the terrible propaganda minister in the Third Reich. And he says, it would not have been possible for us to take power or to use it in the ways we have without the radio. And maybe about halfway through researching this novel, I read this really interesting paper that tracked the genocide in Rwanda um, to the power of radio uh, broadcasts and that it could literally map where certain... Um, transmissions were capable of being received and that's how much the violence would be occurring and then once they were outside the range of various radio stations the violence would taper off and this idea that that these voices centralized voices could foment violence is so powerful to me and scary and so yeah i think it's unbelievably vital that the net remains neutral that we continue to have as many uh, opportunities to hear as many voices as we can and you know if you look at all the um, uh, tyrannies in the world often what they're doing is restricting the information that their citizens can receive we'll have to leave it there much more we could talk about including i'll encourage listeners to go to uh, anthony durr uh, his website anthonydurr.com and there's an interesting article you wrote for Orion, I think, about um, being disconnected, <laughs> coming back of a backpacking trip and want to immediately see uh, how many emails you've got, you know, to feel alive. Am I still there? So uh, go and read that. They're very interesting. Um, and uh, maybe on a, on a subsequent visit we can talk about that. Anthony Durr has been with us. He is author of the New York Times bestseller, All the Light We Cannot See. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you, Tom. It's fun. Thanks for listening today. You're listening to Access U Time, Tom Williams, and hope you enjoyed that uh, conversation from 2014 with um, Anthony Durr. It's a wonderful book, All the Light We Cannot See. 
That was uh, featured prominently in our discussion recently where we compiled our latest UPR community book list. And you can find that book list and listen to that program online at upr.org, as you can with all the Access Utah programs. Very excited about our program on Monday. We are uh, going to have with us uh, UPR friend Martha Hamm, who's put together some radio uh, for us, uh, some clips. We'll also be talking with one of the Kitchen Sisters, Davia Nelson. We'll hear an excerpt from uh, Kitchen Sisters' piece, Cry Me a River. What we're talking about is an exhibition happening right now at the John Wesley Powell River History Museum in Green River. Iconic Utah outfitter Glenn Slight began his river guiding career in Glen Canyon during the mid-50s. Just as the Glen Canyon Dam blueprints jumped from the drawing board to the remote desert terrain, the pulse of the Colorado River through the canyon would soon be halted by a cement wall and Glen Canyon backfilled with water. Ken Slight knew the condition of the canyon was terminal. He used every ray of daylight to memorize every detail of the canyon before inundation to learn its 125 side canyons to observe Native American ruins and uh, mining relics and to immerse himself in the lives of seminal guides who preceded him like Dave Rust, uh, Bert Loper, and uh, Moki Mack. So we are going to talk with Martha Hamm and Davia Nelson with the Kitchen Sisters. We're going to hear some audio featuring Ken Slight. And we'll hear from uh, other uh, prominent figures of the time. We'll talk about Glen Canyon and river running. Hope you join us. That's Monday's program. And, of course, tomorrow in this time slot, it's Behind the Headlines. Hope you join us then as well. Thanks for listening today. I think the main reason why I love Bullseye is Jesse's ability to really ask sincere questions, not just because he's trying to get an interesting answer, but because he seems to really want to know. I'm Jesse Thorne. This week, I talk with comedian and voice actor H. John Benjamin, plus director Sarah Driver on her new documentary about the life of Jean-Michel Basquiat. That's on the next Bullseye for MaximumFun.org and NPR. Join us Saturday afternoon at 1 on Utah Public Radio. Hi, I'm Steve Williams, host of Jazz Time here on Utah Public Radio. I hope you'll join me Sunday evenings for a journey through the world of jazz music, from ragtime to bop, from Havana to Logan, Utah. Tune in for a bit of history, commentary, the occasional interview, and of course, all that jazz. Jazz Time, Sunday evenings at 6 o'clock on Utah Public Radio. You're listening to Utah Public Radio, statewide service of Utah State University and the College of Humanities and Social Sciences. KUSR Logan, KUSK Vernal, KUSL Richfield, KUST Moab, KCEU Price, KUSU FM Logan, also heard at upr.org.